0: That's one approach. That's not what I did. I don't have the lump sum because I just created a company that created cash flow and I then removed myself from the process. I was very fortunate when I was in Berlin this year. I was there for five months. I was able to do, I think, eight recordings in person. And that was such a beautiful thing to notice, how that changed the conversation. It's so much more vulnerable to sit in front of someone than to be behind the screen. So I loved it.
1: And were they people you'd met previously? Uh,
0: Yes, all of the more people I knew, including my ex.
1: (laughs) Interesting. How did that conversation go?
0: It was amazing. It was really nice. We did two, actually. We did one for me, one for her. She was thinking about doing a podcast. She hasn't published a conversation, but it was really nice.
1: And it's on the Relating to Self podcast? Uh,
0: It hasn't been published yet. It will be.
1: Cool. I'll look out for it. But otherwise, do you you use Riverside when you do it?
0: No, I usually use Zoom, which is not great, to be honest. Because the connection can drop. Also, but the, the maximum sample rate of Zoom is 32 kilohertz. So quality is less than what you could do here. And in general, also the, the filters that Zoom has by default are quite aggressive. So people's voices end up sounding a bit weird. But then when you switch the filter off, most people have just too noisy backgrounds or bad microphones. So it's not great, but it works because in the end, the content matters more.
1: Yeah. And how do you usually source guests?
0: Um, well, I, I do find people in my normal social interactions, including on places like Twitter uh, and in real life. But then usually also when I have an interesting guest that I enjoy talking to, I ask them if there would be anyone else that they know that would be a good fit for this podcast. And then I usually get a few recommendations. So that's been a a nice source of of people as well.
1: And what makes someone a good fit for your podcast?
0: Yeah, I think it's about two things. It's about one, they have interesting things to say about how they relate to themselves. And two, they know how to express themselves well. Because, yeah, the, the latter sometimes is a bit of a problem. If people aren't used to voicing their thoughts so much, then the conversation is more difficult.
1: Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, so I find with, if I haven't met the person before, I always want to do in person if possible. Like obviously if they're on a different continent or whatever, that's fine. But then I find after I have met the person, then us doing this conversation is fine over remotely because it's like, I already have this relationship with you that makes sense but if you were someone who I hadn't met I would just I just find it very hard like I just really don't like this zoom culture now that people kind of replace these meetings that you would have in person like even I mean I get it for logistics but even interviews and stuff it's like not meeting the people in you know almost even like up until the point that you join the firm, it's like you've never actually like physically been in the presence of anyone. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter if your job's going to be remote, but.
0: Well, there's a, that's a good point there. Yeah. Well, I think what the way I see it is like, would I rather have a nice conversation through zoom with someone I don't know that I can try to like get close to in the moment, or would I rather not have that because I can't meet them? (laughs) And then the answer is usually, yeah, I still prefer to have the conversation. right? So there's still value there. But I agree with you. I think meeting in person is so important for the nervous system, for the body. And I still try to prioritize it, obviously. But as you said, it's difficult sometimes because of, you know, geography.
1: Yeah. And then it's also, well, because now I'm going to video. Would you ever do your podcast video?
0: I'm not fundamentally against it, but right now I don't see why, really. hmm Yeah.
1: But, yeah, legit. Why are you le- doing le- it? Why am I doing it? Because yeah. I want to put it on YouTube to have more engagement, like, in the comments. I find, like, comments, it means yeah. it it's so meaningful to me when someone interacts with it, even just by saying I listen to it because I just find mm. like seeing numbers, it just doesn't mean anything. It's like, hundred
0: yeah, yeah. percent. whereas
1: just to have someone be like, I listen to it, but people usually don't say like, unless they see me or something, they're not, I'm not going to not like people aren't just going to message me out of the blue probably. And that's obviously only people who know me if people don't know me. Like how would they contact me? Whereas YouTube, I feel like because it has that comment section culture, it's more likely that people will people engage, and then also to to um to grow the audience.
0: That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I totally see your point.
1: So, why did you start your podcast, and how long have you been doing it for now?
0: Um, I think I started the the second year of the pandemic, which is kind of like the the new way to count time, right? So that must be 2021. So it's been two years and a half now. Yeah, it'll be three years in March or April, I think. Um, And why did I do it? I think it's a combination of a desire to contribute to the discourse about relating to self and mental health in general. I see so many people who would really benefit from asking themselves more questions about how they relate to themselves and how they can live a better life by improving that relationship. And so the podcast is my way of inspiring people to think about that, not by telling them what to do or, you know, which framework to follow or how to heal themselves, because I don't know. But by having conversations with others about this, and so people who are interested can kind of check out what's out there in the world and and how they can maybe take that for themselves. I think that's a large part of the drive behind it. And then the other part is that I noticed that I just really enjoy the format. I tried writing about these things for a while, and that was very difficult. It's still it still is difficult. It takes me like a week to write one email when I want to talk about like what's important and you know how my relationship to myself has evolved. But then when I'm on a podcast, it feels effortless. I can just have a conversation and it's beautiful and I learn so much from doing that. And I just also really enjoy spending time like that with people. Sometimes I tell people the podcast is kind of like a, a pretext for me to be able to have very real, vulnerable, deep conversations with someone who's truly present and not kind of distracted by other things.
1: So Amazing. yeah, that's part of it for sure. And then do you enjoy the whole process?
0: No, I do not. I enjoy having the conversations. I do not enjoy the administration around it, as in like trying to find a time that works for everyone. And I also don't really enjoy the the publishing part, like you know, preparing the the audio files, the the little blurb for the for the page, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's there's resistance there, but I do it because I think it's important. Um, yeah, I have ideas about that for the future. I think I, I wanna try to hire help, basically.
1: Yeah, same. <laughs> this is so, so are you just able to remind your, so I'm asking just very selfish questions for myself. But I think so many people are interested in this process of like how, it's like, how do podcasts work? Like, how is it on Spotify? Like, how do you, anyway. But are you able to stay there with that reward? It's like the having the conversation is the reward. And so the work around it, is it's like when there's the resistance it's like yep, yeah, but i'm doing this annoying thing because i want that the fruit of my labor which is being able to have the conversation
0: that's part of it the other part is actually when i do publish one there is a sense of accomplishment it's really nice to feel like oh you know i have this vision of what i could make in the world and then i make the steps and i i finish the thing publish it it's now out there it's something that people can refer to potentially for a very long time and that's also a nice sense of accomplishment because just the conversations if I'm honest I could probably convince people to have those conversations without even making a podcast right so it's definitely also the part where I publish work basically
1: and then do you worry about the distribution stuff or you're just kind of happy with
0: i i hardly even check my numbers i i honestly wouldn't able i wouldn't be able to tell you how many people are listening right now i i almost never check my stats so i don't really care
1: amazing yeah so this is the Anyway, this is boring for anyone else, but this is the relationship I have to work on with myself as it comes to the podcast because I think I'm very similar to you that I get so much out of, like, I love having the conversations. I love re-listening to them. Like, I just re-listened to the first one we did. And it's like, oh, my God. It's like you learn so much again re-listening. It's great. That was episode one for anyone who wants to listen, for your whole growing up story um and then yeah just the relationships you form out of it it's like amazing I'm having a party for the podcast this week in because I'm back in Melbourne I'm in my um my um parent in my parents house at the moment and or the house I grew up in um and I'm like this is a mate like I couldn't have this party and invite all these people and previous guests like you're very welcome but I don't think Probably coming to Melbourne on Thursday is going to be feasible. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'll have I to do it. it. I would have to do a European edition though. But but oh, yeah, man. it's just reminding myself that, okay, all the admin stuff, it's like, this is why I do it. And then potentially, yeah, working towards that, like having people help. But then I have this added frustration thing that I'm like, oh, I want it to be like more, but I think that's to do with my, that was my thing about Twitter because that's to do with my fear of being seen or accepted. So I like hold myself back from showing my work. And then I think that's like an inner conflict I have that I will work through and then that will go away because it's not really, yeah, because it's not really, it's just, I care. It's like, why do I care? And then it's like, that, see, that was the thing that you said on the first podcast that I was talking about, like falling off a bike. And it's like, oh my God, everyone's seeing me. And it's like, but there's no, you said there aren't people just waiting for you to fall off your bike, watching you in the street and like, like fully consumed with what's happening with me. It's like, though, those people I'm worried about judging me are just parts of myself.
0: Yes. <laughs> I still believe that's. Pretty accurate. <laughs>
1: um, okay. So I'm really interested in how this, I think it's now, yeah, it's nearly been 18 months since we recorded that first podcast and think, and since I saw you, right. Cause I think it was your yeah. last day in London. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in how these last 18 months have been for you and specifically <laughs> what you've learned.
0: Wow. 18 months. Okay, we're going to be really testing my memory here. I think it was quite an intense journey, to be honest. Um, Wait, so just to be clear, that was last summer, right? So I had already left my, my role as CEO of the company that I had created. Yeah. And... So when we talked, that was very early days. I had just left and I was still kind of like sitting with what could potentially happen.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe can we go back further to being CEO of that company? Because that's kind of where we left in the last. So it was your story of growing up and your parents' expectations of you and then becoming a musician. And your work, not having a lot of agency. Like, I think this is really interesting for people and this is probably the point I'm at now. It's like when you want more agency and you were also like, okay, I want more financial stability. So what am I going to do? Well, if I go go and do a job, like I'm still not going to have the autonomy and agency because I'll be working for someone else who will be dictating my life, which is how it was in music so then it was like okay entrepreneurship that's the one but you kind of talked about how you didn't you had no idea about what that involved and you also which I think is really interesting you had some beliefs about entrepreneurship that you had to work through as or about yeah capitalism or making money and that's obviously a whole journey, but I think it's it's so interesting and so inspiring for people to be like, okay, for you to decide to leave, design your life, and ultimately be successful at it. It's like, what happened?
0: Hmm. Okay, so we're not going back eighteen months, but more like ten years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Well, I think the last thing you said is actually probably the most important part, right? Like to go out and design your life and then to be really successful at that. I think there's two keywords in that phrase. One is design, to basically take responsibility and to create the things that you want for yourself, not wait for them to arrive from the outside. But the second is success. And I think the most interesting part of that phrase is that I also redefined what success looks like for me. I think most people never question what success looks like. And so they mirror themselves to the people around them. And they believe that success is actually maybe a high paying position in a big company, and a nice house and a car and a good relationship, maybe children, whatever that looks like, right? That's kind of like the almost standardized definition of success. And for me, a big part of the journey was to kind of understand that that was not what success was for me, but then to question myself and to come to clarity about what would constitute success. And for me, it was clear relatively early on that it was all about freedom and agency, basically. Right. So for me, the the idea of success is entirely related to how much choice I have of basically where I put my attention. Because attention is our most important and scarcest resource. And so I didn't want to be in a situation where my attention was directed to something by someone else. Like, hey, now you must pay attention to to this at this time in this place. And like, no, I can decide. So the way I approached it was luckily that I first did the success part I first sat with like look what does success look like for me what's the goal here because you can go into entrepreneurship from a very different perspective and still kind of chase the the ever bigger numbers they, there's no there's no end to that basically and I have a lot of entrepreneurs mm. in the communities that I'm part of who kind of play that game they have a company they they grow it to a million then they grow it to 10 million then what's next well I guess 100 million because what else am I going to do, right? So I started with examining that part, like what was the success for me? And I got clarity about the the freedom and agency part. And then I started thinking about how to create a company, how to create an enterprise that would support that mission effectively instead of getting lost in other things like getting investors or reaching high revenues or whatever. Because the truth is that in order to reach this personal freedom that i was searching you don't need millions of dollars <laughs> well, obviously it, it depends on your desired lifestyle but then again if you look at what success is for me success was not having a huge villa and an expensive car <laughs> so the amount of money i needed to reach my success rate was much lower yeah but i than think most so people i just
1: did that, that exercise a couple of weeks ago with one of my friends and it's so interesting if you do it, and I would encourage anyone to do it, to actually name the things that you would want in your life, even if it's like, okay, I want a house, here. you know, because I was like, okay, I want a country house and I want a flat in London and I want, you know, to send all my future children to boarding school. <laughs> like, oh, and we are literally calculating all the numbers. And it's like, <laughs> it's not, you know, if you're not like, I want to buy a super yacht and a private jet or, whatever, or employ, like, 10 staff, it's actually, and then when you calculate, okay, how much per year and then, like, what's the lump sum of money that would earn enough interest or investment income for that, it's, like, actually, if you, yeah, set up a small business and sell it for a certain, like, yeah, you don't need a 100 million pound business or bigger. But in our head, I feel like it's like, oh, my God, you need millions and millions to or you need to be a billionaire to have this life.
0: Yeah, I think the part of the problem there is that most people who try to do that kind of go the the VC route, you know, they raise money, they create a startup, they raise money. And obviously, with all the dilutions that happen along the way, they end up with Maybe what like ten percent of their company. So then you need a company that's worth a lot of money. If you only if you sell it and you only get ten percent of it, that makes sense. But I think there is another more efficient way, and that's just bootstrapping and building something that creates cash flow pretty much from the start. That's what I did, and yeah, I think another aspect that's important to note here is that because you mentioned. Um, creating a lump sum that then gives you kind of interest that you can live from. That's one approach. That's not what I did. I don't have the lump sum because I just created a company that created cash flow. And I then removed myself from the process.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It was like, how can I replace myself? So now I am functionally retired. You could say I no longer have a role in the company, but I'm still the main shareholder. And so I get profit share from the company. Um, I didn't need to sell my company. The company is also unsellable because it's a small business that nobody wants anyway. Uh, But it still gives me what I want.
1: Huh? And so you thought all this through. Okay, wait. So I feel like we should also give more context that you did find a lot of success in your passion. I, I mean, people should just go and listen to the episode because it's so interesting. But how you're, how you came to that realization that it's like your passion cannot be well, so being music, but then you can and you can achieve that success. But then it can still, you realize, well, this isn't actually how I want to spend my time.
0: Yeah, b- exactly. Because of that question of success, right? Like, what does success look like? If success looks like being a musician that is being asked by important institutions to write operas, then yes, I was successful. But the lifestyle that came with that was just not enjoyable for me. Um, So then it became more about, like, I guess, lifestyle design, which was a thing I was really into for a while. Like, what is it that I actually want to experience every day? And this question has come back to me in an interesting way, by the way, Uh, and I want to skip ahead, but now that I no longer have a role in my company, I basically have complete freedom, right? Like there is nothing that anyone can force me to do. Everything I do during the day is just because of my own decisions, which is wonderful, but also incredibly difficult. And it's really strange in the beginning because we're not used to it. There is nothing you have to do. What do you do?
1: Except pay tax and so this this you.
0: question... but that's automatic i don't actually i don't even pay taxes because um where i live in bulgaria where i'm registered taxes are being held off at the source so my accountant takes away the money for the taxes every month before he sends me my wage and so i don't even need to do anything to pay taxes it's automatic
1: huh yeah 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 well that that's what i find really interesting because so when you left music it was like okay the problem i'm solving is the agency thing but also the cash flow because you were motivated at that point by how can you earn more money so that's interesting that you were.
0: well it's not necessarily even more money like the problem with with the music was not The amount of money I was making was okay, I could survive, but it was this feeling that I had that I constantly had to beg for money. It was always trying to convince people like, hey, please let me do this project. I have this amazing idea. Will you produce it? Will you invest in it? You know, that kind of stuff. That I felt was just not what I wanted to spend my life doing.
1: Interesting. Okay. Yeah, because you did say like if you ever went back into music, you would want you wouldn't want to be in that position and you'd want it to be exactly. sufficient, self-suff yeah, which I guess would be selling tickets yourself or marketing yourself. Um Okay, so you were conscious of like I want money to be flowing to me without needing a permission or something from someone else without it being so much in control of specific people's decision making
0: yes the the gatekeepers are the problem
1: but it, but i mean it was like it wasn't like at that point yeah you wouldn't have been doing a a, a you know tech startup approach where it wasn't going to make revenue for 10 years and you would be like
0: oh right no definitely not Um, from from the get-go it was very clear that i wanted well because of my goals because of what i define success as it was clear to me that i needed to create something that was basically a digital product business putting everything together you know i wanted to be able to work wherever i want i wanted to work with whomever i want i wanted to work whenever i wanted and a digital product business was the most interesting model because then it's theoretically infinitely scalable without needing to scale operations at all right you just create the digital assets whatever they are and then you can sell them as much as you want so that was something that i thought about as well because other people i knew went into more like service-oriented businesses but then obviously if you have more clients you need more people to execute the jobs so you become a manager and then you need to hire people all the time that's not the kind of business that i envisage envisage for myself So, yeah, I was very clear about the the business model, uh, what that would look like, and that I wanted to be business to consumer. Uh, I didn't want to go through the lengthy sales cycles of business to business and creating complicated, complex things that people always want to change. So I'm like, I'm just going to sell something very simple for the end customer. They either like it or they don't. If they like it, they'll buy it. If not, not great. That's it.
1: And did you do all this thinking while you were still a musician or did you take time to off and consciously think about it?
0: I would say it's a bit of both. It's like a crossfade, let's say, right? So I was still, I was still a musician and I was still working as a musician when I started thinking about all these things. I mostly started reading books about this because I had no ideas. And then, at a certain point the the musicianship thing just also naturally faded out because well, because of a few factors, there was just less money in the sector in two thousand eight. we had this big crisis. um I think like seventy percent of our concerts were cancelled overnight, wow. and then after that, it never really picked up much again. well, at least back in the day, I don't know how it is now. um so naturally, I just also had more time to to sit with that, to read to conceptualize what the business would look like.
1: And what kind of things did you read? What did I read? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I think one of the first books I read was The Four Hour Workweek. <laughs> I was going to ask. You know, classic, classic. Because so that, that, that was around the time.
1: And that's the type of business he's describing in there, right? Where it's like you set it up. Exactly. You, and yeah. then... It just works for Well, that's
0: also where where my ideas for this kind of business came from, in the sense that I, I was completely ignorant about the fact that there are different kinds of businesses possible. It's just not something I thought about. So that book definitely also opened my eyes as to like, oh, there is a different way. Because in my mind, and that's part of the stories that you mentioned earlier that I had to work through, in my mind, having a business meant that I would work 80 or 90 hours per week and that I would always be hustling, and that I probably would have to treat people unethically, otherwise it would fail, or something like that. So I had huge negative responses to just having a business, and I didn't want that. So or it the would, four-hour work week also opened my eyes.
1: Or it would be like your mom's experience, right, where yeah. she ran... Yeah, because it can be very hard to make ends meet running a business and you're so stressed. And then she pushed the idea of like, always get, have a wage. So you have the security.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, back in the day, my, my mother, she opened a a small shop selling clothes basically, uh, which is exactly the opposite of what I did in the sense that this is a very high cost business, you know, they have like a physical location. So there's, there's rent involved and, and there's physical products that you need to go out and buy and you're stuck in one place, so your customer base is like, what the people, half a kilometer around your shop, which is not very many, and that's just a, a recipe for for having a tiny business that requires a lot of work. And I went, I did exactly the opposite. I opened a shop that was accessible to literally everyone in the world, with absolutely zero costs, basically. So yeah. Do you? Remember- but that's where the that's where a lot of the limiting beliefs came from. Yeah.
1: Do you remember? where you heard about Tim Ferriss's book?
0: That's an interesting question. I don't. I have no idea how I came into that. No, I don't remember. That's interesting. Maybe I just Googled, right? I, I probably started Googling something like, How to create a business online like the the very very basics and then stuff pops up and then after a while probably tim ferris was was part of those search results in some way i guess amazing maybe
1: okay so then how did it start
0: the business yeah well it started with me having a very clear picture of what i wanted and being very clear on both the success part and what the business should look like, but I had no ideas. I had no product. And then um, I was talking a lot with a friend of mine, Tina, who was a music teacher, and she started. She was very creative, and she started making uh, paper beads. I think that's how it started. She probably made something before that, but I don't remember. So she was making paper beads, and then from those paper beads, she was making earrings and stuff like that, like custom earrings. And she started selling those on Etsy. Etsy was a thing back then. So she had this little shop where she sold earrings. And we talked about that, and I was intrigued by it. You know, Like, oh, this friend of mine has this online shop. And at one point, she was complaining that... Since the shop became a bit more successful, certainly everything that she needed to do was just make the same pair of earrings 20 times and then go to the post office in the evening to send them all in little boxes to the people. And then the next day would be the same. And she's like, I hate this. I just want to do something creative. And here I am kind of like doing factory work. That's not what I want to do. So she then decided to instead do digital designs for her paper crafting. And she didn't know anything about digital design. So she just went to follow some courses about like Photoshop and how to design on a computer. And then she started making these cute little graphics for her own paper crafting projects. And she saw that some people were selling those kind of graphics on Etsy. And she's like, you know what? I'm also gonna sell my graphics on Etsy because why not? And then when she showed that to me, I was like, well, that's, that's amazing That's it's really nice but there's no way that there's an audience for that, right? This is probably like not even a niche. This is just too too specific.
1: So what is, what is it exactly? It's a design on paper that then you print? Or...
0: Yes, exactly. So they are digital printable crafting graphics. So you get a, a PDF with beautifully designed journal pages and all kinds of ephemera like elements that you can use to, to craft journals, basically, right? It's all about like journals and, well, there are some boxes and stuff. But um, it started with like really small things, like for example, little bottle labels or little tags that you could use to decorate like a bottle of wine or something, with it, you know. And yeah, so when I saw that, I was I was really intrigued because I immediately made the connection with like, oh, this is a digital product. Like the, the earrings and stuff, I saw no future in that. But this digital product, that's interesting. I just didn't believe that there was a market for it. And then I think in the second month or something that she was doing that, already like 200 people or something had bought something. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I had no idea that anyone would buy these things. So that's when the idea grew that this could potentially be something where I could learn something from. I, I still didn't see this as like my business that I was going to lead, but I was like, hey, if 200 people want to buy these things, then I'm curious what else could happen. So I started working with her very unofficially, which just kind of like brainstormed a lot about, you know, what to do, what else to make, how to do promotion, all that kind of stuff. And I started going more into the, the businessy aspects of having a business like that. Whereas Tina herself, she was more interested in the, in the design and the creative aspects. And then after a while we decided like, yeah, let's, let's kind of work together on this. I'll, I'll do all the businessy stuff. You do all the creative stuff. And that's great. And for me, that was just um, an interesting side project that I could learn a lot from. I was like, I'm going to learn digital marketing. I'm going to learn all these things about how to reach people It's going to be amazing. And then I'm going to make my business. (laughs) And that happened for quite a few years because in the beginning it it was a small, tiny business and I wasn't devoting my full attention to it and neither was she because she was still a music teacher. So it was just like a side project that we had fun with and it earned some money, but not much. And then I think it's only after five years or so of that that I decided to become more serious about it. At one point I was trying different kinds of things and nothing really worked. And then I sat down with a coach and we talked about like something like if you had to choose one thing, if you had to focus on only one of your ventures, what would be the most promising one? And then when I sat with that objectively, it just came out that that business, Victoria Designs, the paper crafting thing, was the only one that really had some kind of a product market fit. And then I became curious and I was like, you know what, what if I just devote all my time and attention to that? And I did. And that transformed the business. And then um, because of that, Tina then also started thinking about leaving teaching. And then she did that. The first time she did that didn't go very well. She went back to teaching after a while. But then a few years later, we had more cash flow and then she was able to also retire from her teaching job and go into the business full-time. And yeah, after that, we started building a team. And then the, the last three years or so, we just had a lot of expansion. And then I decided to step away, which changed everything.
1: Amazing. Okay, so what what were the other things you were focused on in those first five years, other businesses?
0: Oh, dear. Um, do I even remember? um I was um, a coach myself for a while like a lifestyle design coach because by that point I had gotten pretty good at like how to gain clarity about what's truly important for me and what do I need to do I I also bought a couple of businesses like online businesses which ended up a terrible idea because I was basically scammed really (laughs) um yeah
1: how did that work
0: well i mean there's there's these there are a number of websites where you can just buy a business online right um and i bought a business that was doing promotion for self-authored books and i thought like that's an interesting niche i like to read authors are kind of interesting people and i think it's worthwhile to try to bring these works that are stuck in like the long tail to the public in some way because You know, if you're not a best-selling author, people won't know you. So if I were to write a small book, how could I get it in front of people? That's basically the question. I was like, well, I've been doing some marketing already for Victoria Designs. I can probably help these people. And this was a business that was established, but it was very small. And they had a a customer base of authors that work with them. And so I ended up buying the business in an auction online. And after a couple of months, I discovered that the whole business was basically a scam. Uh, it was set up in a way where people sign up for something that cost $1, like free promotion or something, send $1, blah, blah. But what they didn't know is they were actually signing up for like a $20 per month subscription. That was some buried in like the tiny letters somewhere. And obviously I didn't know this when I bought the business. It looked legit. But then I actually found out by sending emails to customers to improve the service. <laughs> They were like, wait, what? No, I never signed up for this. I'm like, wait. So yeah, that was um, a tough lesson to learn.
1: And so then what did you do with that?
0: I refunded all the money and I closed down the business. And the story goes deeper than that because the, the original creator of the business actually ended up stealing the business back from me. Because I naively hadn't changed the passwords to the access to the website because I thought I was, you know, just... Buying a business from an honest person. So when she saw that I closed it down, she stole it back, changed the password, and opened it again. <laughs> I was like, what's
1: happening? Oh my God.
0: And then luckily, yeah, I, w- I was able to prove to the hosting company that I actually bought the business, and then they closed the account finally. But...
1: Okay, so she didn't scam, keep scamming people again?
0: I'm pretty sure she did. She was already like building a new one, very much like the older one. Uh, directly after i had bought it i saw
1: huh.
0: yeah i mean i think it's impossible to protect yourself from all kinds of scams and like it's just you need to learn how they work and that they exist but so that's one of the businesses i also tried um
1: is that when you became yeah i think interested in ethical capitalism
0: no i was always interested in that i was always really interested in let's say, transactions that really benefit both parties. That was just, I don't know, how I wanted to see the world, I guess.
1: Sorry, what were you about to say? I cut you off.
0: Yeah, I was about to say that I probably tried a few other things. I don't even necessarily remember everything I tried, but none of them were really successful. The, the closest to success that I got was with the coaching business. That went well for a while. But then I also realized that that was not what I wanted because it's not scalable. I can't continue spending time with people to help them along on their journey because my time is limited. So yeah, the choice for, for the digital product business was, was logical.
1: Mm -hmm. I guess people scale the coaching thing by doing, um, by doing online courses, but then that's obviously very different because you don't have the relationship with the, person getting the advice
0: yeah I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible but it just seemed a lot harder mm-hmm. and it was also it was a struggle to find clients always <laughs> you know it's it's a different game
1: and then so how did you when you focused your attention on the paper business so wait so is this kind of like say if I wanted to sell journals then i could buy the pages and then i would take them to a to a bookmaker who would then turn it into and then i'd be able to sell them or something like that
0: yeah well what actually happens is that most people don't sell them right for most people this is a hobby this is something they do as a creative outlet um some people sell them but they definitely don't bring them to a book binder that's part of the process like we also have lots of videos where we show how you can make journals with the materials we provide right so these people make journals themselves they they sew them or they glue them or whatever it is that they do i'm not an expert in any of these things by the way so if if you ask me about the product exactly i'm like that's not my role
1: wow interesting okay that makes sense um. Yeah, it's so interesting when you find that when it's, like, not something that you've ever, like, not something that you're interested in. And then it's, like, hard to imagine yeah. that there would be a market. But then it's like, yeah, just because yeah. you don't do quilting or something doesn't mean that millions of people in the world don't.
0: Exactly. I think it's really important, though, to have a person in the business who knows the thing inside and out, right? I couldn't have done this without Tina, my co-founder, because she's really passionate about this thing. So she knows exactly what people need, how it works, and so on. That's super important. For me, what was interesting to notice is that because I had no personal involvement with the subject, I was able to not take it personally. So for Tina, what was really difficult, if, if she created a beautiful thing, that she thought was amazing and genius, and then it didn't sell, that would really knock her back. She's like, oh, people don't like this. I, I don't know why. It's so good. you know." For me, I was able to distance myself from that. I was like, I don't care which one's sell or which one's not. We just have to figure out what it is that people want. If we see that designs about libraries sell more than flowery things, then let's make more libraries and less flowery things regardless of my personal taste. And it took a while for Tina to to trust me in that because for a very long time, she just went with what she liked, which is not what works in the market necessarily.
1: Interesting. And then, yeah, because that's probably exactly the thing holding me back on the podcast. It's like, just need to look at it objectively. Like if I'm trying to grow it, yes. it's like, look at the numbers, what works, yes. and don't be don't take it personally. Or...
0: Yeah, but there's a difference there also. I mean, it depends how you phrase it for yourself because thinking back, for example, in my career as a musician, I could not have done this because for me that was my art. So obviously I was making music that let's say was quite niche. <laughs> and if I had just looked at numbers, I probably would have ended up making a lot more mainstream music because that's what people listen to more but I didn't want that because it was an expression of who I am. It's my art. So in that case, if it's your art, I think you should be able to decide for yourself what it is you want to make without thinking about the market. Whereas if you're trying to build a business, in this case with crafting designs, then it's nice if you can focus on what people actually desire and give them what they want. right? So I don't know for you with the podcast, you want to grow it, but do you see it as your art or do you see it as the business that you're growing? Ideally, of course, these things combine, but I think that's not always the case.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I worked that out um, pretty early on that. Well, for a couple of reasons, it's like, I really enjoy working in, like, I realized I really love being in an office and I miss that. And I love, I love like, working in finance and using the quantitative part of my brain. So it just happened to work that it's like, oh, cool. That's how I make money. And then the podcast can just be a creative expression thing because, yeah, because I I want to, yeah, I don't want to combine something that's like very from the heart or whatever you want to say with a pressure for it to, put food on the table because mm-hmm. that can be a con yeah that's pretty
0: much also how yeah that's also how i approach my podcast right that's why i don't really care so much about the the numbers because i see it as something that i do for myself that i find meaningful well it's for the world as well but it's not meant to to grow it, it, that's not why i do it if it grows great that means it resonates with people but I'm not doing it for that purpose at least not until now.
1: Mhm. Um okay, so then when you put your focus on the business what were the things that changed?
0: Yeah, well it's easy to make up stories after the facts. Right, So, obviously, I can tell you a beautiful story of why our growth correlated with my choice to devote my energy and attention to it. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe also just the market conditions changed. I don't know. Um, Or maybe it just took the normal amount of years for people to find us more often. Um, But when I decided to focus my attention on the business, we grew it significantly, let's say. And I also was able to then convince Tina that we needed to take more risks, basically, which also meant starting to hire other people, which was a thing, funnily enough, like I remember that conversation when we started, Tina and I, the, the very first conversation we had about creating a business together, one of the talking points was like, we're never going to have people working for us because we don't want to manage people and have a kind of pressure that we need to pay the people and so but then obviously as as you grow that becomes important also because both of us had a lot of tasks that we were combining and so the growth of the business was held back by the fact that we couldn't focus on the tasks that we do best and then maybe delegate other things to some other people so yeah we started hiring some people and i imagine that had an impact on growth as well because then we had more time to devote to actually things that worked. And I would also say one of the biggest things that changed is that I got a lot more involved in product. Um, As in, I had time then to analyze the numbers, look at patterns. And I started inspiring (laughs) Tina to basically make bigger offers. That's the one thing. Because in the beginning, all of our products were very cheap and small. And I saw that when we launched things that had higher prices, the potential for more revenue was drastically higher. So we worked a lot on then defining what is it that we can launch for higher prices. And then we, we came to this conclusion that what would command a higher price is not just the elements of the crafting process, but a kit with everything you need to design this one beautiful project that we can then show you. And those kits have an incredible amount of beautiful graphics. And so we sell them a lot cheaper than all those graphics would cost separately. But in the end, the the package is about 10 times more expensive than most of our average prices before. And I think that also really made the biggest difference is that people now, the average order value increased, the lifetime value increased. And that made us into an actual business that we could then also bear ourselves away from.
1: Amazing. And the customers are all over the world?
0: Yeah, they are all over the world, but traditionally 50% of them are in the States. Um, and I think another 30% or so are in all the other English speaking countries, which kind of makes sense. Uh, but yeah, we, we do have customers pretty much all over the world.
1: And you're sh- physically shipping things? No. Oh no! Sorry, it's digital, it's digital
0: product. Yeah, or <laughs> emailing right. things.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And you? And so, at what point did you move to Sofia?
0: Um, that was four years ago, four and a half years ago.
1: Yeah. And where were you living before,
0: before that? The- I was I was a nomad. For about eight, nine years, I think. I was just traveling around, didn't really have a base. And that was part of the dream, right? Like part of the dream was to be able to be anywhere and still work on the business. So I have fond memories of working on this business from literally anywhere. <laughs> um, that was a really nice way for me of doing that, combining that deep, hard work with always being in different environments and meeting different people and then having beautiful experiences discovering cultures and countries around the world.
1: Huh. And because I guess time difference didn't matter. Like how how closely did you work with your business partner?
0: Yeah, quite closely in the beginning, but then as I grew more wise in my role as CEO – I also started moving to asynchronous processes as much as possible. And not not just in terms of like, hey, let's not have a live meeting, but let, let's just record each other, a voice note or a loom or something like that. That worked really well. But then also even in the business, in the organization of the business, I switched to an asynchronous kind of model, which means that there were no deadlines anymore. Right? Because one of the problems that we faced, this is very technical, I don't know if this is interesting, but it's kind of like if you have a production chain that includes three or four people, they're always waiting for the previous person to, to be ready before they can progress. And that creates a lot of friction. And sometimes if someone misses a deadline, it creates problems because then if you're launching something for Black Friday and the designs are not ready, then the marketing person can't do anything. So I switched to a completely asynchronous model there as well with what I called the water tower, because that's the principle, basically. A water tower is nothing else than a place where you store water for when it's needed. And so all of the different stations of the production process had this place where they could just store things that they made. There was always an abundance of things. And whenever the next stage would need something, they would just look into the water tower and then take it from there and then you know, do with it what they did. And that worked really well. It enabled everyone to work asynchronously, reduced all the deadline stress by by a lot. And it's still how we work today.
1: And where were the rest of the team based?
0: Um, now they are mostly in Bulgaria because, you know, that's where I live. That's also where the business is incorporated. And so that that's where it was easy and simple to actually hire people Uh, but we also have freelancers and yeah we had a few people who were also kind of like nomadic uh, but then now I think all of the team is in Bulgaria and one person is in Miami but the team is much smaller now than back when I was still CEO that's part of the story of me redesigning the business when I decided to leave that's also quite interesting
1: and where's is it tina
0: tina yeah
1: where's she from
0: she's 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 oh. belgium just like i am but she's still in belgium she still lives there
1: yeah mm-hmm. okay so what was the transition out of the business like then
0: yeah that's that's the interesting part i, I didn't really think it would go this way but what happened was that my marketing manager quit almost two years ago now. And my marketing manager was also one of my dear friends that I had hired. So we had a very beautiful open conversation about like, Hey, why are you quitting? And he said something like, well, I realized that working on this business is not the most important thing that I could do with my life right now. I'm like, "Yep, that makes a lot of sense. And that also triggered the question in me, like, wait, is working on this business still the most important thing that I could do with my life? And the answer came also quite quickly. No, I don't think it is. I've done this for 10 years. I've built it out to something that provides me with what I want. And then thinking back about like, wait, what was success for me? I was like, I've already achieved success. There's, there's no need. Sure, I could stay and I could try to scale the business, try to expand, whatever. But is that really necessary? Is that where I want to put my attention for the next 10 years? And I decided that was not the case. So I had a very um, beautiful and vulnerable conversation with Tina, my co-founder, and explained to her that it was my desire to leave the business, to to no longer work in it. And then, of course, at first that was difficult because, yeah, we were just used to working together. And things were going very well. There was no reason for me to want to leave besides thinking that maybe I could do something else. Um, But then in the end, yeah, we we decided that i would do everything necessary to make it possible for her to run the business on her own so that there would be no friction uh, as to like finding a new ceo or things like that that would, that was too complicated and so what i did was basically go through the whole business process and simplify everything as much as possible bring it back to the to the bare bone very lean kind of method and cut away everything that we were trying to do to scale and just get back to the core of the business. So that also meant we fired pretty much the whole sales and marketing team and only kept the, the production side of the team, the people who are making the, the designs and the crafting videos. And for Tina, that was a good idea because she was already managing those people anyway. She was already leading them. Because for her to to lead and manage this whole group of other people that she'd never really interacted with before, that created a lot of tension in her. So, yeah. Um, the business became a bit smaller because of that, obviously, because if there's less sales and marketing activities, that happens. But ironically, throughout that process, we actually became more profitable because we just have a lot less costs. So in the end... Um, our compensation didn't suffer from this. And it was actually a really exciting and interesting time to see that you could transform a business back to something much simpler and have it run better, if anything.
1: Interesting. That's, I mean, you obviously have such a great relationship.
0: Yes, well, this is something we've worked on a lot over the decade, right? So it's not that that came out of nothing or that just existed. It's a commitment to truly step into that vulnerable kind of intentional and authentic leadership and to fully take responsibility, to not hide your emotions, to work with your emotions, to to welcome the emotions of the other, uh, to not caretake, you know, all these things. These principles from relating to self and relating to others is something we'd really try to apply in the business, not just with my co-founder, but also with our employees. And I think that also really contributed to our success because our employees were ecstatically happy to be in this company. They, they couldn't believe how we treated them. And so also with dinner, I've always had the idea that our most important KPI, if you want, is the well-being of the team, which includes Tina and me, obviously. So safeguarding Tina's well-being throughout that process was crucial for me. I would not have stepped away if I would have felt that, look, this is going to bring other people into problems. That wouldn't have felt right.
1: So then was it hard letting go the sales and marketing people?
0: No, it wasn't at all. Because when we had an honest conversation with them, well, I had an honest conversation with them and they understood my perspective. <laughs> and we already had that culture of like candid communication and openness. And so we also attracted those kind of people, right? Like it was very clear, even in our hiring process, that we wanted people who were able to just say what is. Uh, without fear so yeah I I think that was all much easier than expected
1: and were when you left were you able to cut yourself off emotionally like now are you emotionally detached or are you still like oh how how are the cash flows what's going on
0: yeah I think I was able to emotionally detach while I was still running the business. So it wasn't hard to step away in that sense. Of course, there were still habits, right? There were kind of like mechanisms in my mind that would think about the business. And in the beginning, I was kind of like... Well, the funny thing was in the beginning... Tina and I, you know, were friends long before we started the business together. So we, we still talk. And then she would tell me things about the business. It was like, oh, this happened and that worked really well and that didn't work. And in the beginning, I was very happy to hear all that. But then after a while, I realized that hearing those things made my brain constantly still think about the business. So then I asked Tina, like, hey, I would prefer if you didn't tell me those things about the business. It's okay. I trust you. You're, you're going to do your thing the business is going to be okay. And of course, I'm still there if she has questions that she finds no answer to. You know, if she needs support, of course I'm there. But I don't need to hear like the, the sales statistics or anything like that. Because that forces my brain back into that mode of thinking about the business. And I don't want that. But emotionally, yeah, it was... I mean, there was some grief, obviously, that I had to go through as always when there is an important transition. But I wouldn't say that was difficult.
1: And are the cash flow is kind of stable enough that you're not like it doesn't trigger you to think about it when it comes through to you.
0: So far, no, I don't know, right? Um, because you never know what's happening with a business. Um, where is it going to go in the in the coming years? We'll see. I think I'm not triggered because. Well, because of my relating to self, basically, I think I've done a lot of work of really trusting myself. I think even if the cash flow of this business would completely disappear, I would not be in a position where I feel anxiety because I know that I am able and I have the capacity to do something else that's going to be meaningful and beautiful and will allow me to continue living. So, yeah, I'm in a place where I have a lot of peace around that question of subsistence, even if this business would disappear.
1: Amazing. And that's what I was going to ask. Was that your mindset before you started, like as you were leaving music, were you, like the way you're describing it, it sounds like it was quite a calm, patient process.
0: Well, it was different, obviously, right? Like over 10 years, I've evolved a lot. I've changed a lot. But I think the one thing that I did have also in the beginning is this idea that we can take things at our own pace. I very much dislike this idea of creating urgency for the sake of movement. It's like, this needs to happen now. Everybody gets stressed and like, hustle, do this thing. I was never like that. I was always like, let's see, let's just do what we can while we feel good, like while taking care of ourselves and see what happens. And if that doesn't work, then I'd rather do something else than to go into this mode of like, we need to push it all the time. That's just not healthy.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting how that can just be the mindset or the energy of people around. And it can be about anything. It can be about, yeah, like certain life events. It can be about time between employment or between transitions. or. But, I, yeah, I feel like it's a lot of fear. People just some kind of fear thing creating urgency. And if you just respond with – because then it can trigger fear in you. But if you just respond with, like, oh, I'm not worried about that. Like, why are you worried about that? Then it's like the other person can – relax or something because they Mm -hmm. or like when they sense that you have fear then they feed off that or something
0: yes i think it's part of cultivating this kind of like deep okayness and that's an inner job right this is relating to self this is part of this journey that i've been in for a long time now where i'm like whatever happens i trust that i will be able to navigate it In some way, I can't predict how, but I am creative. I will come up with solutions. And in that sense, I'm not worried of whatever comes.
1: And, okay, back to the early parts of the business, or I guess the first five years of the business when you were nomadic, how was that? Like how long would you spend in each place? What what were the favorite places you went to?
0: Mm. Yeah, I think I would stay at least for a month anywhere. And there are places that I lingered in, let's say. Uh, My favorite places, it's not difficult. It's definitely Japan, number one. I spent a lot of time in Japan. And I think in second and third place, respectively, but maybe interchangeably Italy and Spain. It's not very strange is it? <laughs> those are places that people like in general.
1: Oh, and I guess because for the EU, you can just be anywhere and stay as long as you want in any place.
0: Well, not as long as you want, really. Um, I think for visiting, the official legal limit is three months in the EU. If you stay longer than three months, then you have to register as a, as a resident. And that's, that's possible, but it's an administrative yeah. question. And then if you, if you are in a country for more than six months, then you become a tax resident, which has other implications again. And, of course, the whole nomadic working thing back when I was doing it was kind of in a very gray zone, um, illegal in a lot of places because you're not supposed to work while traveling because then you need a work permit but then of course that's also mostly to protect local workers like they don't want people to take their jobs which is why for example places like Thailand and Indonesia quite early on already said like look you're not supposed to work but if you're just working on your business that is somewhere else and you're not serving local clients then we don't care so much it's okay you can do that uh, unofficially of course there was a whole period where, all these things were just not regulated because it wasn't possible before. Um, but so for me, I guess, especially in the beginning, the first years, I wasn't earning any money, money with it anyway. So I, I had no income. So I think that would never have been a problem, really.
1: What do you mean you had no income? Just
0: Well, from, from the business, right? I had income still as a musician in the early years and from the other things I was doing. But basically, it was a, it was the worst possible setup. I was paying taxes in Belgium. I was officially a resident in Belgium. I was paying taxes in Belgium. And then I was traveling, staying in places for a month, two months, and still paying taxes in Belgium. Even if in the end, I was basically not in Belgium at all, but I was still officially a resident of Belgium. Because in order to remove yourself as a resident from a place, you need to register somewhere else, which as a nomad is maybe not possible. So for... For simplicity's sake, I just kept my thing in Belgium, but it's officially like the least interesting because Belgium has the highest taxes in the world, basically. So, really? Yeah. But, you know, it's okay. I, that was never why I wanted to be a nomad because I know nomads who do that because they want to, you know, minimize taxes or optimize their fiscal regime, whatever. Um, yeah, that was not the reason I do it.
1: Huh. So, were you kind of hanging around with other people, living that similar lifestyle?
0: To be honest, I was alone a lot. I spent a lot of time in solitude, which is something I like. Uh, it's yeah, it was by design. And then when I connected with people, yeah, a lot of similar people, a lot of other nomadic workers or remote workers. Um, just you meet them you know, by going to co-working spaces and and events and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, but that was also not the main aspect for me. I wasn't doing it to meet people.
1: Yeah. Cool. And then Bulgaria was like, the business was based there.
0: Well, that only came afterwards, actually. Bulgaria was where, after about like eight or nine years of nomading, I decided that I wanted to have a base again because I wanted to reduce my carbon footprint and I wanted to potentially be able to build something meaningful over a longer period of time in relationship with a place and with people. So then I went to a process of trying to decide where to do that. And that was quite complex. And in the end for a few really good rational reasons, but also intuitively I, I chose Sophia as a base and yeah, I, I still think that was a really good choice, and I'm all, I'm still here. Um, so then I. I decided to create a business here because I was here anyway, and well, I needed a way to sustain myself. So, having a local business to then. Put the activities of Victoria Designs in and pay the wages here, hire people here, just made sense.
1: And in the before Bulgaria, did you have a place you'd go back to in Belgium or you literally had all your belongings like with you at any time
0: yeah for for a while I still had my apartment in Ghent but I was also renting it out so I couldn't really go back there but it was like I was renting it to businesses for maybe like a month two months so sometimes in between I would still drop by so I still had some of my stuff there I already didn't have that much stuff to begin with and then also for a while, when I sold my apartment in Belgium, I put some of my stuff at tinnis Place, actually. And then I was registered at tinnis Place also for, for quite a while um, before I officially moved to Bulgaria.
1: Cool. I feel like we're, we'll have to do a part three to find out about <laughs> the, the phase. What happened next?
0: yeah i think that's the most interesting part actually but that's maybe because i'm in it
1: (laughs) yeah well but then it's so interesting because it keeps evolving right so it's like
0: yeah for sure well i think that's one that's one thing that i've come to terms with about myself things will keep evolving for a while when i was younger i was looking for the steady state that i could stay in right like what does that look like Now I've understood like, oh, maybe there is no steady state. Maybe I will just keep evolving and keep changing and that's okay. I can just surrender to that flow and go where the aliveness is. And that feels pretty good.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting. You said that on the last podcast as well, that, um, yeah, it's like you don't know what you will want to do when you're 60. And that's kind of, how my thinking shift shifted from instead of like goals of like, okay, I want to get here. And so I have to do this. And, but it's like, but what if you don't actually enjoy doing that on the process to achieving that goal? It's like, isn't, it's kind of, you get to that point where it's like, okay, I want to, I mean, obviously there's, there's things you have to think about for the future and, you know, like looking after your health, making sure you're financially stable, these things. But beyond that, like we, I guess, have the privilege of a lot of freedom to choose what we enjoy doing, even outside work or whatever, for example. And it's like, you just don't know what you'll be interested in in five years, but you do know like certain things about yourself that, and that's why it's like amazing getting to know yourself because
0: of... yeah yeah, I think that's pretty much like the worst case scenario right where you, you have these dreams and they become your goal and then you go through maybe 10 or 15 years of hard toiling to reach those goals and you don't you don't enjoy the process but you're doing it because you want to reach that goal and then after 15 years you reach the goal and then you're in the goal and then maybe you realize hmm, maybe this is not what I want <laughs> because you hadn't experienced that before, right? So that's the worst case scenario, working towards something that you actually don't want, but you don't know until you get there. So for me, a big part of the journey has been to make the journey itself pleasurable and beautiful and enjoyable.
1: Yeah. And then I guess, yeah, saying yeah, I think my thing was less that I would get in the trap of doing something for 10 years. It's more that I would announce, like, this is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a venture capitalist or I'm going to be a whatever. And then five minutes later, it's like, oh, no, I had one conversation and, like, fully <laughs> changed my mind. It's just like now I'm taking on a new identity. And then when you just realise, oh, this keeps happening, so why don't I just say that i don't know like i don't know what i'm going to be doing in five years or where i'm going to be living like i have some ideas of what it might look like but that's fine yes um okay i wanted to ask you as a last question well i am interested to ask your three words that describe you your three, the three words that describe the best version of you, because I remember the words you said last time, so I want to know if they've changed.
0: Oh, wow. I don't know. I don't remember the words from last time. three words that best describe me or that I want to describe, like, the ideal me, right? Mm-hmm. I think that would be integrity, compassion, and kindness.
1: Amazing. Last time you said kind, compassionate, loving.
0: Pretty close, yeah. I'd like to I, add presence there somewhere, but I can only have three. So,
1: um, and how do you stay grounded?
0: Huh. That is a subject for another conversation, Delia. I mean, there's a, a bunch of interesting practices to be discussed, but I would say in general. It's mostly about silence. I can I can name practices of like meditation or whatever, but I think it's mostly about silence. Silence is grounding because it gives us the space to process what is and to then come back to a more relaxed state.
1: And then I asked a book that had a big impact on your life last time and you said Gifts of Imperfection, Brene Brown. Mm-hmm but I wanted to ask what, because I listened to the podcast in where you were interviewed on your podcast Mm -hmm. recently, and you mentioned how much you enjoy reading fiction. So I'm interested in what fiction Mm -hmm. you enjoy.
0: Hmm. I would say my favorite fiction author right now is Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, Japanese descent but grew up in in the UK so writes in English um I just really really admire his versatility and his stylistic mastery he's just incredible like the the way he draws you into a story without even showing you the important parts of it's just beyond compare um
1: Cool. Yeah. Is that Clara in the Sun?
0: Yeah, that's one of his. I think that's his most recent one. Yeah. My favorite probably is nice. the Buried Giant. That one is just so masterful, but very strange also, which I enjoy.
1: Cool. Okay. Anything? Any final comments before we wrap up? Yeah, one or, one more. And book. where can people find you? Yeah,
0: one more book that I want to mention that I think is worth a read for anyone. Anyone really is the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. An amazing book oh. to just understand more of what it means to have authentic relationships with yourself and others while leading, whether it's a company, an organization, or something like that. So, highly recommended. Where can people find me? Um, my website is relatingto self.com. I'm on Twitter. Just Joachim Brax, my name. Um, and I am now <laughs> subject for the next podcast, moving into this space where I surrender to being a teacher and a guide, maybe even an elder for people. So I am starting to organize things like workshops, retreats. I'm going to be hosting meditation sessions here in, in Sofia. If you're around, you know, drop by, say hi.
1: Amazing. Thanks so much, Johan.
0: You're very welcome, Delia.
1: Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with someone. And also, um, a random 23-year-old just messaged me on Instagram and told me he found the podcast through the algorithm. So it actually does help if you review the podcast and subscribe or follow. And then you get to find out about future episodes as well review or rate. You know what I mean. Anyway, it would truly make my day. So thank you in advance.